Some of you really like these Sundays where I get to introduce a book of the Bible. Others of you are usually just say, just get to the book. <laughs> Sorry, it's a, one of those introduction sermons. I, uh, me and Vince have an ongoing joke. He, he says I preach in calligraphy and crayon. Yeah. Calligraphy being sophisticated talk, crayon being as it sounds. And I did tell him that this series is largely crayon. But there's a little calligraphy today <laughs> as he leaves. Um, so if you sit through today and you're like, that was boring, come back next week. We'll get into more crayon. But uh, why don't we open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for Jesus. Thank you that you love us, that you died for us, that you've given us grace and forgiveness through Jesus. Father, you are a Redeemer. The story of this book in the Bible throughout the ages, I believe, is in some ways a tale of redemption and how it's been interpreted. Because as we think about its contents and as we think about what it talks about, sex and married love and things like that, many of us have three reactions to it. One is to revere it, to make it more than it should be. The world does this. The world seeks to be identified by its own sexuality. Many people about not who they are before you, but who they're with. Another extreme is to reject it, to repress it, something dirty that we should never talk about it, especially at church. But I believe your way is to receive it as a gift, as you intended, and to understand what it is and why it's a gift and what are your intentions for it. Father, as we read this book and study this book together, I pray that you would do a work of grace in our hearts. Many of us may need healing because we've never thought to talk about it, and a church is the one place we wouldn't bring it up. But Father, in your way, I pray that you would be working You've put this book in the Bible, Dean read for us, that all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching. So we thank you for this, and we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You open up Genesis 1. The world was created. Animals were created. Adam was created. God told Adam to name the animals, he couldn't find his helper. That's an aardvark, I really don't want to be with him. Eve was created. Love was created. The idea of love or romantic love has been around a long, long time. It's literally of the ages. And like anything that God has made and called it good, the enemy has taken it, counterfeited it, and made it bad. So much so, for a long time, even the church had bought into a really a warped idea that there's just something almost untrustworthy, maybe sinful, maybe not altogether, not altogether good, about romantic sexual love. We're told in creation before the fall 
Then the Lord God made the rib, and he had taken from the man, that he had taken from the man, into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. First human words of history is a love song. Just saying. It's biblical. Does that mean there are two types of acceptable holy music, praise and worship and Christian music, and then love songs? No, I don't know. But it's still noteworthy that the first human words seem to be of that nature. It strikes me that that Moses, traditionally the author of Genesis, doesn't even tell us, and God breathed life into Adam, and Adam said, thanks for making me, God, I really appreciate it. No, rather the Holy Spirit wants us to see that out of the mouth of man, the first thing we hear is love and appreciation for his wife. And it is his wife. Verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. Adam and Eve were married. And they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. One flesh. This means what it sounds like. I I believe it means these two consummated their marriage in a perfect, unfallen world, and they did so naked, and they felt no shame. The idea of romantic love is appealing to most people. Stories about it, songs about it, life experiences within it. It is no doubt one of life's biggest, most significant sources of gravity, if you will, in people's lives. But it has a tendency at times to displace what should be the all-consuming center of one's life, the relationship between Christ and one's life. We're going to be looking at the book of Song of Songs for the next several weeks. I really actually don't have a timeline. I just plan to take it week by week, read ahead in Song of Songs and say this looks like a good sermon. And I'm also not entirely sure if I'm up to the task of preaching it verse by verse. (laughs) Not because of time constraints, but because of content. (laughs) We'll talk about content more here in a minute. But from the outset, I want us to consider our congregation and, and the reasons I'm doing this series. I recognize this, that Christy and I are among the youngest here. So... What could a pastor who's been married for eight and a half years have to say about married love? Well, my hope is this. It's not what I have to say. (laughs) What does the Bible have to say? See, the Bible has worked so far (laughs) for any other series or sermon I think I've done better than what so-called wisdom I might have to share. Hopefully you hear my prayer every sermon to let the Holy Spirit speak. So this series is another step into the faith that that indeed is what's happening. We have older couples, younger couples, widows, singles, and the like. So will this series only profit a few people (laughs) to those who may not fall under the category of married or something like that? Will it be better for you to just tune out this series? I would respond this way. If you received a letter from a friend in the mail... Would you scan the content of that letter and only find a paragraph that really interests you and then forget about the rest? Or would you scan the content of that letter and mark off an entire paragraph unnecessary, not worth reading? I don't think so. See, this is God's Word. 
He's placed this book in the Bible, and I believe it's for our good, no matter what we're doing, who we are, what our lot in life. It could be that God uses this series to speak to you in ways that are far beyond or not within the realms of what the primary content and theme is. God seems to do that at times. The the, the purpose of this first sermon is more introductory. So I'm going to say off the bat, if you've never picked up study guides that coincide with our sermon series, this is one sermon series that you really don't want to overlook this. Instead of a study guide, it's really a commentary on Song of Songs, and I believe it will make the book much more make much more sense for you, maybe, if you agree with it. (laughs) The Song of Songs is debated to really understate it. (laughs) It's debated. A passage that relates with what we're talking about really jumps out at me is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife to respect her husband. Now, Paul is not doing a commentary, nor even does he remotely, what he says in Ephesians 5 would normally cause us to think of Song of Songs, but I think he hits the nail on the head when he mentions three things generally the reality of what married love is between a man and a wife, the mystery, and thirdly, Christ and the church. (laughs) Those three things define well for us what the ages say about the Song of Songs. It's about Is it about married love? It's really mysterious. Is it about Christ and the church? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Song of Songs, the title is taken from the first book, first verse of the book. It begins, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Song of the Songs is a way of saying the best song, right? Holy of Holies, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We get the meaning of all those phrases. The holiest place on earth. Jesus is King over all kings. He's the Lord over all lords. And the book is called The Definitive Songs of All Songs. It's certified platinum number one on the chart of charts for all eternity. That's the idea. The book has been called different things. Song of Solomon, which has also seemed to be derived from the first verse. Canticles, that's the Latin for psalms or hymns. Luther's Bible, Martin Luther's Bible and other German Bibles, if you translate their name for it, they just flat out call it the best song. And then sometimes you may see or hear a shortened form of the title, song. (laughs) Did Solomon write it? Some would say that the first verse pretty much covers it, no debate, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, but the words for which is are also debated in the original languages. The the Hebrew could suggest everything from the Song of Songs to Solomon, as in the book was dedicated to him, or the Song of Songs by authorship, or concerning Solomon, the, the, the book is about Solomon, or It's Solomonic as it's written in his tradition or his style, wisdom literature. I personally believe that though there is debate, he wrote it. Just because I'm going to take a stance on it, I don't know. (laughs) Just because 
I thought it was interesting. There is a suggestion and belief that perhaps a woman wrote it. Because some of the literature just seems to be overtly feminine tone throughout the book, touching on aspects of married love and about things that really only a woman would gush over and naturally write, I guess. So purporters of this authorship suggests, out of 117 verses, the woman character, the bride, is speaking 61 and a half of those verses. That's natural. I heard the chuckle. I heard the chuckle. <laughs> um, I, while I might disagree that a woman wrote it, there is a neat aspect to this bride being the primary character of this book. I brought this up um, whenever we went through Ruth, but if you uh, remember the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible has a different order than our canon. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible in its section of writings, it has Proverbs... And then I, I, I was a little bummed because I found this out later. My commentary either lied to me or they weren't shooting for, I guess, dead on accuracy. But after Proverbs, I guess, comes Job in the Hebrew canon. But then comes Ruth and then comes Song of Songs. Do you, do you remember the last chapter of Proverbs? Some of you ladies are like my husband certainly remembers the last chapter of Proverbs. It's about the uh, virtuous, noble woman. Well, it's interesting that you have a noble woman who can compare, but then the Jewish scribes, I guess, again, they put Job after, but then they have two examples of noble woman after the 31st chapter of Proverbs. You have Ruth, and then the primary character of the Song of Songs. Its sixth chapter calls this lady Shulamite, but it's that's just a female form of Solomon. So I often just call her the bride. <laughs> Generally speaking, we, we seem to have a noble example of Ruth doing what she can to provide for her family, her household, and then the bride in Song of Songs, some of the compliments her husband pays her, paints her with very strong character. Both are virtuous and assertive women. Or, is the bride in Song of Songs a virtuous woman at all? Oh boy. Here's where we come to the title of my sermon. Everyone has an opinion. <laughs> I don't know what's more debated, actually, Song of Songs or Revelation. They're both fairly well d- debated and disagreed upon. It seems Song of Songs was accepted as canon or as holy writing as part of the Bible from a very early time before Jesus was uh, even around. One of the oldest statements we have on the book comes from a first century rabbi pretty closely after the time of Jesus. Being a rabbi, I don't believe he was a Christian. Nevertheless, he says, Whoever sings the Song of Songs with a tremulous voice in a banquet hall and so treats it as a sort of ditty has no share in the world to come. Which is very interesting. Um, I think the eighth day of Passover, uh, Jewish people will actually sing Song of Songs. This isn't some love song to sing out, though, is what he's saying. Furthermore, his opinion on the book of a whole is, for all the ages are not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. Now it's interesting how many of you, whenever you set out to read the Bible in a year, you're like, I'm just waiting for the day I get to Song of Solomon. (laughs) This guy had a high esteem for it. But his assertion that the Song of Songs is the holiest of books, or the holy of holies, lets us into his interpretation of the book. He he believes, 
And you'll find that many believe it's allegorical. It's a picture of God and His people, the bride. This view is the dominant view of the book really from the earliest sources we have of Jewish and Christian all the way up until the 19th century, so the 1800s. We'll get there and how it changed in a few minutes. But as I've been reading the book for the last several years, not to mention studying for it now, I've wondered how so. I mean, maybe I live so much in Western America that I didn't even... Which this has been interesting and convicting to me, because what do I say? The Bible is about Jesus. And so I don't know why I've always all of a sudden thought, well, Song of Songs is more about a man and his wife. <laughs> Let's take the first chapter, for instance, though. The bride is talking here in the first chapter, and she says, Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your caresses are more delightful than wine. If you're starting to get embarrassed, just don't look at me, Okay. <laughs> The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. Now, interpreters of old would say that the bride is Israel. And she is begging the man, God, here to kiss her. She desperately wants a relationship with him. She wants to be taken to his private room, and that is Palestine or the Holy Land. The chorus would then say in the book, We will rejoice and be glad in you. We will celebrate your caresses more than wine. Now what's implied here is perhaps that they are kissing, and then interpreters would say here that the law has been given. Now where they're drawing all this history from, I don't know. But God's kissed his people. He's giving them the law. And he's delivered them from Egypt. Now the woman continues in verses 5 and 6. Daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. So she's dark, she hasn't taken care of her vineyard. Old interpreters would say that this is Israel saying that they have sinned. They have not taken care of their vineyard. They've committed idolatry after the exodus and the law. Then, verses 7 and 8, so interpreters would say, is Moses concerned about Israel. Moses apparently says, Tell me, you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tents. So interpreters would say this is Moses trying to urge them to remain faithful under the shepherd of God of Israel. Now, I bring up all this to say this was how it was interpreted. This is not how I interpret it. (laughs) Interpreters of this sort would look throughout the rest of the book as an allegorical history of God and His people. But as I said, everyone has an opinion. So instead of God and his people, perhaps the man Solomon and the woman is wisdom. And this is how Solomon inherited his wisdom. The earliest Christian interpreter we have is a guy named Hippolytus, if you're looking for another name for a kid, around 200 AD. And what Christians do from the earliest of times is basically what Jewish interpreters do, but instead of God and Israel, it's just God in the church, or it's Christ in the church And I like what one of my commentators said. If two allegorizers, 
if I can continue here. He says, if two allegorizers ever agree on the interpretation of a verse, it's only because one has copied another. <laughs> In other words, it's kind of a little slight. There are lots of opinions on all these verses. Now we're going to get really interesting. Some of you need to wake up. It's going to get a little funny. <laughs> Origin from 185 to 253. He had a long-lasting influence on this book, took the, took the uh, interpretation that it's allegory, allegorical. But I think it might give us some insight as to perhaps a major reason for allegorizing this book. At a certain point in Origen's life, he, adept, he adapted a radical monkish life. There was this Greek thought that made it into church history that, and this thinking that even persisted all the way through medieval Christian thinking that everything spiritual is to be elevated to the point of dismissing or demonizing everything physical. Dualism. This was certainly the view Origen took. It said that he personally castrated himself. And then one of my commentators chimed, he also seemed to castrate the book of the Song of Songs (laughs) in his interpretation of it. The groom again is Jesus, the bride is the church, or sometimes the individual soul. Here's what's really interesting. As for taking the book at more at face value, which is what I do and what many do at this time, Origen says, these things, in other words, to take the book literally, seem to me to afford no profit to the reader as far as the story goes, nor do they maintain any continuous narrative such as we find in other scripture stories. It is necessary, therefore, to give them all a spiritual meaning. But then, in order to fully explain the spiritual meaning, because they don't seem to be easily accessible, he wrote ten volumes of commentary on the book as well as a number of homilies. His work would be read and spread throughout the centuries. Some of you hear of this idea of the Latin Vulgate Bible. That was done by a guy named Jerome about a hundred years after Origen died. He was also very monkish. And instead of castrating himself, it said that he used to throw himself into thorn bushes when he felt the onset of arousal as a youth. When he was older, in a letter to one of his disciples, a girl actually, he basically told her to reserve reading the Song of Solomon after she was wholeheartedly, deeply, and thoroughly mastering the rest of the Bible. As one of my commentators said, after looking at this proposed program of study, it's safe to say that she would never read the song, and that may have been Jerome's intention. (laughs) In the 12th century, there was a Bernard of Clairvaux. He wrote 86 sermons on the book, but he only made it to the third chapter. (laughs) First verse. That's an average of two sermons per verse. (laughs) I'm only doing one one verse in this sermon, really, but I I intend to speed up next week. (laughs) Bernard considered the book the epitome of teaching, and so much so his sermons were actually only addressed to monks and not to lay people. It was too holy for the masses. As we come into the Protestant Reformation, it's actually basically the same. The symbols and the allegories might change, but the book is still an allegory. There's a few exceptions to this throughout history. Um, for example, John Calvin is one who said the book is about married physical love, and he also says it deserved to be remained in the canon. And in fact, John Calvin prohibited and exiled a student of his for suggesting Song of Songs is is about physical love and thus should be removed from the Scriptures. 
Good old John Calvin always exiling people and burning them at the stake. But another John, John Wesley, one of my personal heroes, he also stuck to the allegorical approach. And he said, this: the description of the bridegroom and bride is such as could not with decency be used or meant concerning Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter, that many expressions and descriptions, if applied to them, would be absurd and monstrous, and that it therefore follows that this book is to be understood allegorically concerning that spiritual love and marriage which is between Christ and his church. Wesley is referring to what many see this book about, that if the man is none other than Solomon, he has a line in his first chapter, I compare you, he says, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Romantic, right? <laughs> you are like a horse in my stables. <laughs> First Kings 3.1 tells us Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh king of Egypt by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. And so some have speculated that the bride is actually this girl. And that's what Wesley was referring to, that those who take this book to be some erotic poem about Solomon and the Pharaoh's daughter really treat this book indecently. So why the overarching long-time adamancy that this must be a book about Christ and the bride, God and His people? We certainly see that imagery elsewhere in the Bible. I brought up Ephesians 5, what Paul said when he compares a man and his bride as Christ and the church. He talks about both of those um, in the same topic there, if you will. So there is biblical support to see a man and his bride as a picture of Christ in the church. And in fact, I will probably bring out some verses to make comparisons as we go throughout. But also, as I mentioned earlier, there was this inherited belief that everything spiritual means good and everything physical means bad. Sexuality, the Bible tells us, is kind of actually a category unto itself when abused. When sins concern sexuality, it's a big deal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral, sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. So I'm just proposing this theory that perhaps this biblical understanding of sexual sin, coupled with this Greek thought of spiritual equals better, more holy, more pious, while physical equals sinful, inherently evil. And so like Pharisees do, the church by and large seem to not only be embarrassed by Song of Songs, but they actually really seem to have seen sex, even within the confines of marriage, as something to be repressed, something to be diminished or ignored. In so doing, it gave the impression, as it intended, that it seems to be basically sinful. <laughs> A sinful necessity in life, if, if people could take the path of Paul and stay single as he had advises in 1 Corinthians 7, all the better. Now, I do want to say this as an aside. Admittedly, I think the pendulum has swung. <laughs> and suddenly, singleness in much of church culture is looked down upon, or at least not encouraged. 
or emphasized, and family and marriage has almost become an idol. But, getting back to the whole thing with Song of Songs, if you have an entire church culture that sees sex as pretty much evil, but at the same time you have this glaring book in your Bible (laughs) that seems to celebrate sex within the confines of marriage, what do you do? (laughs) You either suggest Song of Songs be taken out of the canon, which might deem you heretical, (laughs) or you can repress it, which seem to be the majority of opinion and call it allegorical. A few things on the idea of allegory. There is a difference between an allegorical piece of literature and then an allegorical interpretation. Follow me. An allegorical piece of literature is an intentional writing where the author intentionally is writing with hopes, more than hopes, with the objective that his audience picks up on the pictures, right? For example, have you ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? The main character is named Christian. (laughs) He's heading for Celestial City. On his journey, he encounters obstacles like the Slough of Despond. (laughs) I wonder if these are more than just names and places. (laughs) But they have other meaning. They do. It's obvious. It's supposed to be obvious. These are obvious signals and signs that his work was to be taken allegorically. There are no, in my estimation, obvious, and I will just say obvious, I'm not saying they're not there, but obvious signs and signals that tell us as we begin reading Song of Solomon to look immediately for other under-the-surface meanings. Just to make you blush a little bit. In the fourth and seventh chapter... There are references, said early interpreters, to the Old and the New Testament. What were these references? Apparently the breasts of the bride described. Now, one easy criticism of this would be, what's your basis? How is the author referring to the Old and New Testament? There's no immediate basis provided. If you're interested, some interpreters said, well, we feed from the pure milk of the Old and New Testament. But even so... Unlike something like the Pilgrim's Progress, there's not even anything within the whole book that suggests this is how we should take it. The sort of thinking, considering, for example, what's the basis? What does the text say about itself? Even so far as to say, what does this one singular book, Song of Songs, say about itself? This was kind of a way of approaching the Bible that actually only came into favor around the Renaissance. And in doing so, it changed the older view. There's a few other things about why um, our minds changed about this interpretation that I will skip for the sake of you not napping on me. So, how do I take it? There is actually a, a plot, I believe, in the Song of Songs. It's a story about a couple being married, overcoming problems of married life. There are a few symbols, a few recurring themes in the book. First of all, there's a lot of garden imagery in the book. uh, Reminding us, I believe, of Genesis. This is why, uh, because they were in a garden, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. So this is kind of song and songs in a nutshell as I'm going to preach it to you. It's about a man... And a wife, learning to be together, shamelessly naked with one another as well. One of the common problems is actually the wife learning to leave her home and be with her husband. 
She misses her home, being the wife of the king. That's another thing I take, that the husband is none other than Solomon himself. Now, as I said, you're, you're going to want the study guide or the commentary this time around. It really helps you understand the book. Here's the structure generally of the book. I believe there are two general movements. The beginnings of love, in which we talk about the wedding day, and we also talk about courtship. And then the second half of the book is on the development of oneness, where we encounter the problems. The first problem is actually, you know, really relatable to anyone we might know, that when the man gets home late and he makes advances and his wife puts him off. <laughs> That's the first problem. The the second problem is, again, the bride misses home, wants to go home, and so they actually they go for basically their honeymoon, I guess. Uh, they go to where she grew up, and whenever they return to the palace, we actually find a sense of closure in the bride that she's happy to be with her husband instead of being defined by her home. That's generally it. Even in that, you can see a relation to Christ and the church. Some of us need to leave the world, be happy to be content with our groom. There you go. It's written in the format of actually a theatrical drama or a play. I'm not suggesting that it was ever acted out as a drama in Solomon's day. It was probably saying. Besides Solomon and the bride, there is a third character that acts as a literary device to move the story along. The, the conscience, or just a third character for the main characters to have somebody to talk to. Every couple needs friends, right? So one uh, one pastor cleverly uh, suggested that this chorus, which is what I call it, is the group of female friends around the bride. That uh, Because every groom knows that you not only win and marry the bride, but you have to marry her 47 girlfriends as well. So that's who they are. The recurring elements in the story that are worth noting, some are. Perhaps the biggest one is that there's appropriate time for the marriage bed. Um, and then exclusivity and fidelity to one's mate. Uh, three times the bride tells the chorus to basically not let her be stirred up or love be awakened until the appropriate time. And each of the times she says this, um, she, she also, or I should say the story invites us to consider us, consider why she is saying that. Generally speaking, the bride says it in light of one's wedding. So save yourself for the wedding night. Secondly, the bride says it in counting the cost. Make sure you've counted the cost before you married that person. And then lastly, the bride says it actually after she at first refused her husband's advances. And then he walks away with a deflated ego. Felt like love was withheld from him. When they reunite, she has this phrase to the chorus again. And so in other words, the bride learns that married love is selfless and not selfish. So that's kind of the third time she says it. Then, fidelity and exclusivity to one's mate. There are references to the fact that these two only have eyes for each other. In fact, uh, the husband says that twice with her eyes she has captured him. (laughs) It's obvious that the passion between these two are intense and they're only for each other. Well, this is obviously an ideal to strive for, these two recurring elements. But it's obviously one that Solomon himself failed at. (laughs) This uh, is another problem that the book faces, I should say, from criticism. And it's a subject I'd like to close this sermon on. That if Solomon wrote this, which I believe he did, how does his life compare with the book? (laughs) 
First, let me present the biblical evidence as to why I think Solomon wrote it, and then let's examine his life in comparison. In 1 Kings 4, verse 29, we're told, and I'm looking at verses 29 through 34, and I'm skipping a few things which you'll see grayed out or just dots. But God gave Solomon wisdom, very great insight, and understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than all the wisdom of the people of the east. He was wiser than anyone. His reputation extended to all uh, the surrounding nations. Solomon spoke about 3,000 proverbs in his songs, numbered 1,005. Emissaries of all people sent by every king on earth who had heard of his wisdom came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. His songs numbered to 1,005. Some see this as evidence from the Bible that obviously numbered among these songs, taking into consideration Song of Songs 1, that Solomon wrote this book. As I mentioned earlier about the passage of Solomon marrying the, the Pharaoh's daughter, you know, the reference to Pharaoh's chariots in the book itself, some think this could be Solomon's dramatic embellished account with the Pharaoh's daughter. I don't necessarily feel constrained to believe that because it seems like in the book that the bride uh, originally lived natively in Israel. The, the vacation to her homeland doesn't seem to be in Egypt at all. Uh, so I personally believe more inclined to be a story about Solomon and perhaps his first or maybe his most intense love. But some of you know this, it's not his only love. It's not his only spouse. In fact, the book itself in Song of Songs, we hear this wonderful compliment from Solomon to the bride. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and young women without number, but my, my dove, my virtuous one, is unique. Now, is she saying, I wish I could say the same about you, virtuous? <laughs> well, for a few things, the passing of harems from king to successor has been observed. And it could have been the case from David to Solomon. When Solomon became king, the harem came with it. Secondly, as I mentioned a few times, uh, again, see First Kings 3.1. Look at the wording. It says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt by marrying Pharaoh's daughter, and then that's kind of for that account. We're not told if he cared for her in the romantic sense at all. In fact, it's worded that he did it primarily to ally, ally himself with Egypt. And so all this to say, in the culture of Solomon's time, and in his youth, he could have been smitten with one gal in particular, even having many wives. It's been suggested that as we consider the three main contributions of, of Solomon to the Bible, namely Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, that he wrote these books actually in this order. That um, actually as a young youth, relatively innocent and pure, smitten with one gal, he wrote Song of Songs. And then throughout his life, he wrote and collected Proverbs. And then as an older man, looking back on his life, and often through the lens of regret that you might pick up on, he composed Ecclesiastes. Um, that seems relatively... Neat of an idea, and I wouldn't doubt it. First Kings 11 gives us a depressing end to Solomon's life. It said that he's loved many foreign women from many nations in which God had forbade Israelites to marry into. It said that Solomon followed after the gods of these women. The kingdom split because of Solomon's sin. Uh, the reality is this, though, about the Bible. We're given many books full of godly wisdom written by flawed authors. <laughs> That's the beauty 
of God's Gospel, isn't it? We don't throw out half the Psalms because David was an adulterer and a murderer. You don't throw out the epistles of Peter because he forsook Jesus uh, when Jesus died on the cross. Well, you might be thinking these people repented and I could say, well, does Solomon's depressing book of Ecclesiastes suggest that at least in his mess of sin he still managed to be slightly repentant? I don't know, maybe. What we do know is that it seems very evident to me that God has put this book in our Bibles. (laughs) And just... A man like Solomon messed up sexually can compose a book about real love for us. So I pray that as we read read it, and that hopefully as our world comes into contact with it, our world is messed up sexually, but God can change um, our world as well and us as well. So I hope that God will speak to us in the coming weeks about real love. So that's my introduction. You can come back next week for the first sermon, I guess. Um <laughs> I invite you to pray with me. Father, we um, we do thank you for this book in the Bible. It's a small one in the middle of our Bibles that many of us pass over, have been embarrassed about it. Perhaps we've had our own thoughts, our own opinions. Father, we do know that you've given it to us for a reason. We also know what Paul says is true, that all Scripture is uh, worthy to teach. It's for reproof, it's for correction. And so we pray that as we... Uh, read and study over these next few weeks that you would give us whatever it is you wish to give us through uh, these words. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have uh, to do so. We love you. We thank you. Uh, We pray that the idea that um, sex is not to be revered and it's not to be rejected, but it's to be received would uh, do something in our own lives, Um, perhaps help us to um, repent from old wounds or to get over old wounds. We thank you for the opportunity you give us to do this, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.